Congratulations, golf nerds. The long winter is done. The snow is mostly melted. And for golf geeks everywhere... It's the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe. Yes, sir! Crazy, huh? Wait, there's more. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And welcome to Swing Thoughts. Humble Howard, along with Tim O'Connor... And uh, by the time you download this, the Masters will be over. But for us, we're recording it Saturday, April 9th. And uh, we're buzzing here on the Swing Thoughts International Headquarters as we get set to watch coverage. And let's uh, welcome everyone. (laughs) Keep it together. Come on, Tim. Me and Ben Crenshaw, we're losing it right now. Um... I'm Humble Nance, along with Tim Faldo, <laughs> as we get set to cover the Masters. Tradition like none other. The tradition on Swing Thoughts continues. All right, kids, uh, great to be with you. Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca, uh, HumbleAndFredRadio.com. Uh, that's kind of our day jobs, or this is our passion. And uh, let's get right to our uh, guest today. And our sponsor. Oh, for goodness sakes. Taylor May, brought to you by... Look at you. All, look at you all grown up. Taylor Made Golf. Taylor Made Adidas Golf, sponsoring Swing Thoughts. Taylor Made, the number one driver in golf. You see, our sponsorship is so new, we don't have enough reps in that we're right, unconsciously man. competent. Right now, we're barely competent. <laughs> right now, we're barely conscious and barely competent when it comes to our sponsor, Taylor Made Adidas Golf. And it's funny if you watch any of the coverage of the uh, Masters uh, this past weekend. You know, it's interesting, and it's going to be fun talking to Richard Zokla about this. Golf, fashion, I mean, clothing in the sport has changed a lot since the the days of bell bottoms and Sansa belts and checkered pants. It is interesting to see how tailor-made Adidas has changed the way, and other manufacturers, but it's changed the way golfers look now. They, They look completely different. Oh, they look sharp, man. They really look sharp. Uh, I like the pants. I like the way the pants, um, you got that more narrow cut than the big bell bottoms. But that sort of reflects, uh, you know, I guess pants in general. You know, mostly I'm wearing sweatpants, so it doesn't affect me. Although Mickelson had... It looked like Sansa belts. We, I had a big, I had a debate yesterday watching with my buddy. He says, "Has he got no belt?" I go, "Hang on, let's freeze frame this. Uh, let's get uh, Richard Zokel in here." Uh, our, we were just talking to Richard before we rolled tape that uh, Richard is now tied for um, the most appearances on our show at two. Hopefully, this won't be the last. I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, everyone knows who Richard Zokel is. Played on the PGA Tour for a long time, uh, and on and on and on. But one of the reasons we're having Richard back is he's got such a great brain. When it comes to the mental side of golf, he's one of those people that responds rather than reacts and has done, I think, for his whole career and considers things as opposed to just having things impact him for no reason. Richard, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with uh, back uh, with both you guys. It really is for um, Canadian golfers, especially, and you know those of us who don't live in Vancouver. It really is one of the most wonderful times of the year because it's almost like okay, winters should be. Although we're having crappy weather here, for the most part, winter's kind of over. We've watched some golf on TV, but you know whether it means something to watch a WGC or not. But the Masters is the first one that means something. And I guess my first question is: when you were on tour. Well, two questions. How many did you play in? Masters? Yes, sir. I played in one Masters, the 1993 Masters. Well, then let me ask you, at what point did you start thinking ahead to playing in this golf tournament? When I won uh, the Greater Milwaukee Open in September 1992, because that's the moment that I qualified for the Masters. Uh, It was something that I was constantly... Um, uh, working towards dreaming of, and interesting enough, the year prior, I, I, this in how you know it's very applicable to what we're talking about. How our brain. I did something differently at the start in 1992, and it revolved about meditating about the Masters because I wanted to get into it, uh, qualify for it, and um, it was something that I did. We can talk about that uh, in a moment if you want to, but it was something that worked uh, directly. Uh, it was re- directly responsible for me getting into and qualifying for the Masters, which means winning on the PGA Tour. Did that include? Include everything from 
seeing yourself drive down Magnolia Lane yeah. and all of that? Yeah. Cool. Uh, so here's what I did. So at the start of 1992, I've been on the PGA Tour for 10 years, and I was kind of frustrated. I felt like I hadn't made any, you know, meaningful progress. So in every year I'd make, you know, kind of these new resolutions and goals that I'm, yeah, going to, you know, go play the Masters, and, and nothing would really happen. Um, it would dissipate. So after 10 years of doing this, I was quite frustrated. Start in '92. I read some books and found out how you know mind works. So <clears throat> I would spend every morning thinking about uh, uh, you know what my perception. I'd never been to Augusta. I'd I'd, I'd perceived dr- actually driving in, driving down Magnolia Lane, finding a parking lot, whatever my imagination was about the locker, the clubhouse, and the locker room. I'd walk in. And before I'd sit down and have breakfast, I'd go and you know use the facilities and 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 that's then sit down. That's important to see in, in your mind before it's, you do. Yeah, as opposed to taking a leak in the parking lot. That's no one likes that, Richard. <laughs> exactly. You <laughs> don't want to serious. do that. You may want to do that at other places, but not. No, at exactly. Time. You're not changing your shoes by your trunk. Well, you're talking about the level of decorum that one needs at Augusta. Is like be mindful where you can take a leak. Yeah, I don't want to get booted out of the club in my mind. That's right. In my imagination. <laughs> All of a sudden, I see you being taken out, <laughs> taken out by security, and you're like, no, no, but I qualified. You picked the wrong okay, washroom, so, pal. Uh, you can tell we're a little bit giddy today exactly. because we're all excited to watch this. But anyway, so you, you visualize for some time, and I, I have a question about that in a second, but just to continue your, uh, your narrative. And I'd play the round 18 holes, and I'd do this in my mind. It'd take me about 20 minutes every day. And, I, and then the next day and the next day, and, and what I found after doing it, it became extremely vivid. Mm-hmm. And because I'd have yesterday's thoughts to, to um, build upon, and it would get more vivid and more vivid. And this is the power of the, the mind. And I started to, it started to impact my belief system. And then, uh, and then I had a terrific year. I won twice that year on the PGA Tour, won an unofficial event opposite the Masters when Fred won. And then um, later on, a week before the Canadian Open in Milwaukee, and then uh, that's what qualified me for the Masters in uh, 1993. So, again, psychological stuff, and uh, it was a way to improve my belief system. Well, I want to talk about the experience of playing the Masters, but when you were coming down the last few holes of the 92, uh, you know, tournament, did you, were you aware uh, coming into the last couple holes that this is it, if I just hang on or whatever it was? Because those thoughts, because you had spent so much time, you know, sort of future living in the Masters, that you, you must have been aware keenly in the moment that this might actually bring your dream to a reality. Well, I didn't know... <clears throat> I wasn't thinking that this would bring my dream into reality. Those, those thoughts would just absolutely destroy you. Mm-hmm. First of all, I've had a lot of experience of failure in that moment. Um, back in 86, I believe, I had the 54-hole lead of the Kingsmill tournament, and I started thinking like that, and I had an absolute collapse. Um, the night before, I was thinking, well, what do I have to do to shoot these future projected thoughts? What do I have to shoot to win? What if I shoot 80? And it, yeah. it started getting away on me, and those, and I collapsed. I shot 79 the final round. Fuzzy Zeller went, to, uh, went on to win, and I just, you know, his locker was beside mine in the locker room. He wins, and, you know, I just felt like roadkill at the side of the road, and that's part of the learning experience. Absolutely. And, and so... When I was, it had learned how to stay in the moment and coming down the last few holes, playing in the final group, you know, I had the lead quickly. I got, grabbed the lead from Mark Brooks uh, at, in Milwaukee by the turn, and I was practicing to stay in the moment. I was consciously thinking of deep breathing uh, with, through, between the shots, and then I maintained my routine during the shots and played brilliantly um, all the way through. And uh, quite frankly, coming down the stretch, uh, you know, I had a, I had a one-stroke lead playing the last hole, made a strong par, and Brooks made an eight. And uh, it, it was, um, it was, it was a, a process that I did very well of staying in the moment all the way through the 18th hole. It was, uh, it was a wonderful piece of work. So the, uh, the key piece for you, as you're saying, is about your breathing. So did you find that when you focused on your breathing, you actually felt what was going on, and that diminished uh, your hyperactive uh, mind from reeling away on you? 
Well, yes. I knew that I had to, you know, stay in the moment. I knew my pre-shot routine would keep me in the moment. But the problem was your thoughts can run away with you between the shots. Between shots, absolutely. Between the shots, exactly. Yep. And so I literally, I said, I knew that if I could just focus, have the discipline to focus on my breathing, because keep in mind, I've never won before, so I'm in, I'm in new territory, and I'm trying to break through, <clears throat> and everyone has to break through to different levels in order to improve. So I knew that if I maintain my breathing, and, and it was, it's very difficult to do that, and uh, to stay in that moment and concentrate, and if I did it, that I would be able to maintain control. My thoughts wouldn't get ahead of me, and I'd be able to control my golf game. You know, it's interesting. On the way in here today, I was listening to the PGA Tour radio, and Larry Renker has a, a program. It's, it's mm -hmm. fine. And he was talking to somebody, and they were sort of touching on a little bit of the mental side. Mm -hmm. Did you hear it? Timmy? No, I didn't. I don't listen to any other. Yes, I, did. I was oh, You don't listen to any other. Uh... I only listen to swing thoughts. Okay. Yeah, you, well, you don't want to be polluted. <laughs> you don't want your mind to be expanded by any other exactly. nonsense. What were we going to say, Richard? He was speaking to James Speakman. Exactly. So he's talking to him, and, and it was just a throwaway comment because they were talking about short game and James' book. And, and one of the things that Larry or James said to a caller was that Nicholas was asked, what was the thing he relied on? You know, when he was winning all his tournaments and majors. And, and the funny thing is, the, the words that came out of his mouth were what, what you just said. I just concentrated yeah, on my breathing. On his breathing. Jack Nicholas knew all of this somehow, instinctively, or instinct, intrinsically, or whatever you want to say. But I want to point out the irony, because I, I know if I were listening to this, I'd say, isn't it ironic that Richard was meditating every day for some time about an event in the future, but in the moment of, of victory, you were concentrating on the present? Exactly. So here's the deal. So our consciousness, our perceptual awareness, which is let's, it's our attention, it can go into the future and it can go into uh, the present. We just have to control it. Now, the problem comes in is when you um, go into the, you know, into that portion of your mind where you're projecting forward. You need to take visits in there. You need, gosh, you need to plan out your future and you need to learn from your past. The problem is, is when you never come out of it because you're in that state, and that's where anxiety lives. You've got to visit there, but then you've got to spend most of your time out of it because if you don't, the anxiety will just ramp up. It'll become compulsive, and you will, have, you will be incarcerated in emotional torture. Great, great mean, phrase, by the way. And not only incarcerated, you'll be paralyzed. For instance, the Richard Zokel the night before the Kingsmill tournament, what you did, you spent all this time in the future wondering, what if you shot 80? What would you need to exactly. do to win? Mm -hmm. And the problem with that as a, as a trait for human beings is that 95% of the things that we worry about, the future visits we take, never happen. I mean, exactly. you know, I've got, so I got a teenager in grade 12, and one of the things I remember saying to her early on is, you know, she would be worried about all these things, and mm -hmm. I'd say, sweetie, you know, you got to understand, most of the stuff you are worrying about is never going to happen except in this one in instance it's happening in your brain, and, and we as golfers, we future jump all the time. Right. And it's ironic to me, again, that you're talking about how present you were in victory and how not really present you were in, in, not, in, in, not, in not victory. There's a new it, phrase. Exactly. Not victories. And I also recall back in 2001 when I, was, I had the lead in the, the Canadian PGA Championship when it was part of the Web.com Tour in Toronto area. And I had the lead, and, and because it was a Web.com Tour and I was a PGA Tour player, I was expected to... Um, win the tournament. So expectations are part of a logical thought skill that are very dangerous. If you get embedded in expectations, and if they're too high for you, you're going to be, you're in trouble. So I recall those same type of things, thoughts coming to me the night before. And in the past six months, or in the past year, I was practicing staying in the present because I had this discipline. And, and I could feel those things. What if I shoot 80? What? And I went, you know what? Stop doing that. I caught my attention where I was. And I stopped it, and I started working on the thoughts that I was practicing. And I went out the final, and I slept like a baby that night. It was great. Then I went out in the final, uh, prep, preparing for the round at uh, Rattlesnake, I think it was. And, and I went out, and I shot, uh, you know, the lowest score of the day by anybody when you had the lead. So they can't possibly catch you at that point. 
And so it was extremely powerful to learn how to have a plan of thought to train yourself to stay in the present and then actually execute it and have that kind of control. Well, that's uh, exactly what the, the area I wanted to get into was about preparation. And the players who go into the Masters, uh, they, it was um, somebody was talking about how for six weeks prior to going to the Masters, he would practice certain kinds of shots that he knew he would have to hit, and that's what Nicholas would do. Um, yeah, Nicholas said there's six key shots that you need that's it. at the golf course. One of them is a, a fade into 10. One is a you know hook into whatever, but... It was, I thought that interesting, too. Yeah, so whether you're you're preparing for a major championship or for your own club championship or something like that, I think it would be interesting to ask Dick about the preparation it takes. So he's talking about, so Nicholas is talking was talking there about technical precision, hitting certain kinds of shots, but Dick was also talking about mental preparation, getting his mind in the right place. So he... he prepared himself by meditating on and seeing himself going down Magnolia Lane. So when he got there, it kind of felt he'd already been there. To Almost familiar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and familiar. Yeah. Exactly. And he'd also practiced his own awareness around his breathing. So when he gets there and he's in those moments, he can pull it off. Does that sound uh, like anywhere near yeah. the mark? Yes, absolutely. You've taken us, like when Jack was preparing for the Masters, he's projecting in the future. What kind of shots is he going to have, you know, in the coming Masters? He's played it enough that he knows that a fade into 10 will land soft as possible. That's the best way. So then he practices it. And then, you know, one of the neat things we're watching right now is Rory talked about it so well at the press conference last night, what he has to do to win. And he talks about, I have to stay in the moment. And, 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 and all these guys know that. Um, and the, but the difficulty thing is, is for them to actually do it. And then with this win the way it is, it heightens up the anxiety because the margin for error on this golf course, man, it's playing like a U.S. Open. Oh, yeah. So, and it's scary. So they need to you know, be able to calm down in the moment. Uh, and, and, and I know all you people are thinking, when are you guys going to get to uh, what was it like to play in the Masters, Richard? Uh, <laughs> we're going to get to it. Here's a couple of quick thoughts, though. I'm watching that uh, special they did on the 86 Masters, you know, the iconic yeah. Nicholas and, and the yes, sir, call. And I, what, I cried again. Uh, me too. Yeah, I did too. I, seriously. I, 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 you know, it's so funny. I cried for so I had tears for so many reasons. One about, you know, thinking about watching it with my dad and all those things that golf does. But part of it is like, wow, that was such a neat moment in time. But I loved oh. what Nicholas said. He said in, 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 in other years, you know, he's 46 years old. He said, in other years, I used to start thinking about Augusta in January and start preparing in January. He said that year I thought about it in January. I didn't start preparing until March. You know, you know, he's he's got he's got his wife and a bunch of family there. He's got his kid on the bag. He's not really taking it that seriously until he gets there and sees the article on the uh, on the fridge on the fridge. Yeah. And even though he said in the special, he never told, he never said anything about it. That registered with him. Well, yeah, it inspired him. You know, it, 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 there was a, it was a breaking moment, whereas he was pretty comfortable. But when someone challenged him in the media, that got his attention, and it inspired him. It changed his physiology, and he, he did something about it. That's the power of the mind. Absolutely. I mean, Nicholas has the best mind there ever was. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's, uh, uh, speaking of, uh, of the older guys, uh, it was really interesting that, uh, you know, Tom Watson played his last round uh, at Augusta, um, at least in the Masters, on Friday. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting that Butler Cabin, when Tarico and um, Curtis Strange are talking to him, and Tarico's going something like, you know, you've got those two bastards memories to draw from. The very first place that Watson goes is, yeah, but I left a couple out there on the table. Yeah, I thought that was great. What a competitor. And I think that that's the thing that sometimes people uh, lose when they think about uh, the mental side of the game, they think that we're talking about playing in this blissed-out place of equanimity, and you know everything is cool. No, these guys are these guys are competitors, and they're excited to be out there. And so, so Dick, maybe speak to a little bit about that, you know, holding that balance between trying to, you know, you know, you're excited to win, you, you're a competitor, you you want to step on another guy's throat, but you also have to be. In the moment, you also have to be able to respond, make good decisions. Speak well, yeah, I think like. you're right, and I think Tom, Tom, like every other prof- every professional golfer, and I think every golfer for that matter, feels like they've left 
golf, you know, good performance out there. It doesn't matter, you know, Tim, you feel that way. Howard, you feel that way. All the listeners feel that way. Tom Watson feels like he's left golf tournaments out there. Jack Nicklaus feels that way. Tiger feels that way. It's natural to feel that way. You know, Tom Watson didn't win the, win the PGA. And, you know, you've got to figure out, he found a way to, Tom Watson, that is, to, because we all remember when he was considered a choker. Do you remember that in 74 oh, yeah. when he <clears throat> should have won at Wingfoot, the U.S. Open? And um, he was labeled a choker. But until he got to Turnberry and beat Jack head-to-head, you know, he was constantly looking to get that breakthrough moment. And that breakthrough moment, and in whether you are aware of what you're doing or if you've just found the formula that works it doesn't matter as long as you're doing it because that's what leads to success and that's what golf is is finding ways to break through those those uh, those new barriers okay so now let's play the masters theme again and here it is it's the 1993 masters and you've been thinking about it since the last hole uh, of the GMO in 1992 and just walk us through. I, I think it would be cool for us sort of amateurs that can never really experience it. I know Tim's been there many times. I've only been there once. But as a competitor, what is that week like? And then take us through how you felt you fared during your, uh, your time there. Okay, so the first time uh, I went to, I had a practice round there in December, went down there with the... Uh, Oh gosh, another Canadian member from Montreal. Um, no, I'm going. My mind's blown. Bouchard, uh, Remy Bouchard. No, no. Um, I think there's only. Let's three just start members. naming French people. Uh, <laughs> Rene Levesque, uh, Rocket no, Richard. He was the chairman of uh, Alcan. Great, great. Uh, Sorry, Richard. We don't move no, in those circles. All right. No, no, we don't know. So you went guys. down for a practice round. Let's leave it at in that. December. We, right. we played a practice round, and it and was, what was it, was it like wonderful. the first? Did you play it from the back tees? Were they were they available? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. I remember going on the first hole and going, man, I can't believe how fast these greens look. So I tried to lag it, and I ran it about 15 feet by, and there was your first introduction. It just scared the hell out of me. And that wasn't even at tournament speed. That wasn't even at tournament speed, exactly. And then let's jump forward to the tournament. I get there, and that week, I remember, oh, it was really interesting. So I get there the Sunday night. Uh, night we were playing New Orleans before, and and um, it's you know you don't sleep very well Sunday night if you're playing your first Masters. You would get up early Monday morning, and typically my wife was uh, driving me to uh, the Masters. She needed the car. Everyone gets a car, right? So the typical PGA Tour event, you go there early Monday morning. No one's there. It's Monday, and, um, you know, uh, no one's at the golf tournament. No fans are at the tournament. No fans at the tournament. So we drive up, and it's about 7.30 in the morning. My wife didn't uh, get ready. And we drive up Magnolia Lane. She's going to drop me off, and then she's going to take the uh, car and and, uh, deal with the family. And uh, but she hadn't, you know, she just threw some sweatpants on. And we're driving up. There's like ten thousand people there, and we. She drives in. She goes, "Oh my God!" And uh, so that was the first shocking experience at seven o'clock on a Monday morning at the Masters as we drive up Magnolia Lane, and you know, you get out of the car and people just start applauding. Because you're a, ma- a master's contestant, so you're in absolute shock. You've never seen anything like this at any other tournament. <clears throat> so you weren't thinking that it was the best you ever did at getting out of a car? <laughs> That's <laughs> well, right. I was going, just, did you tip your cap and go, I really am remarkable about you know exiting this vehicle? And I remember my wife, they, we left the car on, and I was pulling the clubs out of the trunk, and the car was running, and my wife, you know, she was just uh, panicking a little bit yes, and exactly. kept on turning the key over to start the car while the car was running. She was so ain't getting out of this car not dressed like this. Exactly. She, uh, so that was, that was, that was a, a, an interesting moment. But <laughs> what I found in preparing for the tournament and playing in the tournament is my excitement level was so high, and I was working my damnedest just to calm down because I knew uh, that I was fulfilling my longtime dream, but I also knew that if my excitement level was at this high, that I wouldn't be able to perform. It was going to be disruptive, and I was doing my best to calm down, which, you know, you only can do your best, and I think that's part of the reason why first time, they talk a lot about first time Masters players don't play well. Fuzzy Zeller won it um, his, in his first go, but typically um, you, I think being so unsettled uh, and you got to get there a few times to learn to settle down and, and, and put your attention on, you know, trying to win the golf tournament. So are you breathing, breathing, breathing? 
Well, I was trying, but, you know, at sometimes, uh, you know, even a sparrow can fly as hard as against a hurricane and <laughs> not, make, not make progress. Uh, I want to ask a couple quick questions, just if, just in no sort of particular order. Like, do when you recall that time, are there any kind of cool moments like, oh, there was, uh, I don't know, there was Sarazen, uh, there was Nicholas walking to the practice thing, and there was so-and-so, or I was, you know, those kind of moments where you're like, you sort of pinch yourself and go, is this actually happening to me? Well, here was here was one of my great moments. I, I you know, I, the thing I didn't like about it was is is the that week the weather was really bad and it was really cold, so the ball didn't go. And I'm remembering playing like 17 with a good drive, and I'm hitting three iron into the green, and I'm going, wait a minute here. I remember this whole guy's hitting nine iron, and I've got this three iron, and the course played so difficult and and, and not normal, and which was unfortunate. And I remember shooting 73 over the first round so I'm kind of right on the cut line because the course was playing very difficult and I'm still even par through the second round I get to the 12th hole and I dunk a ball in the water and, and I'm right on the cut line and I make a 7 on the hole so there goes my chances to make the cut but the coolest thing after that after that round I'm sitting there and I got to know Byron Nelson a little bit I did a outing up in uh, in Banff with uh, the Oilman's tournament in, uh, in out of Calgary and I got to know um, Byron Byron pretty good. And uh, so after the round, I was talking to Byron Nelson. And I said, you know, Byron, you know, I, I just I couldn't figure out the swirling wind on number 12. And, you know, I dunked it in the water. I said, you know, wh- what do you do? And he goes, Richard, and he t- says in his soft voice, and I'm just p- taking all this in because it's Byron Nelson. He says, you got it. You see the uh, Spanish moss hanging off those trees? And I go, yes, yes, sir. He says, just you got to watch it off the right tee, off the trees, off the tee box on 12. And if that, you know, just watch that Spanish moss. And if it's blowing, that's the direction you've got to go with. Because if you look to the trees to the left, it's going to be going the opposite direction. So, you know, to have, uh, you know, a, a, a nugget like that from the great Byron Nelson is something that I hold very dear. Interesting. But that's the kind of stuff that comes from experience. Yes, exactly. And you get, you, you know, you, you get the, like life, like golf, mm-hmm. you get beaten up a whole bunch. And if you learn from your mistakes, you know, if you don't learn from those mistakes, then you're into, you know, what I call golf insanity. Yep. But if you learn from those mistakes, then you can make progress. Yeah, well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was maybe uh, it could give our listeners some insights into how they can prepare for a tournament um, and, you know, what the types of things that they can do in, in getting ready for, you know, the Club C. I mean, it's the annual choke fest at any golf yeah. tournament. Um, and, and just speak a little bit about what they can do mentally in terms of preparing to play into uh, sort of maybe their biggest event, their masters yeah, yeah, of the year. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's um, <clears throat> the thing is what everyone really needs to understand. And Bobby Jones said it best. He says, "There's you know there's golf, and then there's tournament golf, and they're two very different things. It's really difficult." To um, you know, play one competition a year right. and, and and expect to perform. You have to do something. You know the old ten thousand hour thing. You got to do it every day, and then that's when you're able to make mistakes and learn from them. Because it's really difficult to learn from the mistakes you made from your club championship uh, last year and apply them to this year because they're long gone. You have to have a shorter time to learn from it, like yesterday's round into today's round and then into tomorrow's round. Then we can make some meaningful changes and make progress. So number one, first of all, bring the expectations down and understand that, uh, you know, it, you know and, I mean, it's shocking for people. They're, even if they play serious money games, they're playing, they don't putt out. Yeah. And, and, and the simple fact of actually having to putt an, a 10-inch putt freaks people out. They don't know what to do. And, and, and they often... Um, you know, they often choke. And, hey, when are we going to start talking about uh, what happened with uh, Ernie on the first hole, <laughs> Yeah. by oh. the way? Anyway, so jumping back to the same subject, do you understand? I think So I think they have to, first of all, lower expectations. And, um, and it's really a tall order to ask to figure out something when you, you know, just on a, on a one-off tournament. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because there's a, a, the running gag, Tim and I have mentioned this a couple times, is the range is never so crowded as it is right. the week before the club championship. 
Like, it's amazing. Guys you've never seen practice, all of a sudden, guys are trying to chip and putt for the first time. You know, I, I had an interesting conversation with a buddy of mine. We both play a lot of senior golf, and we were talking about our schedule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about some tournaments we're going to play. Like, like I'm going to play between the first week of May and the end of September, probably around 20 official tournament tournaments and then multitudes of club stuff and he asked me about one tournament whether I was going to play it or not I said well I'm going to play it it's a it's the mid-am younger guys than me Mm. I said but my expectations are just to get some just to get myself in that moment to play Mm -hmm. three or four rounds and he was like well don't you want to win I go okay realistically sure it'd be Mm -hmm. cool but I just need to I want to bank a bunch of rounds before the tournaments the senior mid-am I'm sorry the senior am the club championship and a few others that I'm I'm working toward because by the time they come around, I'll have been in that situation 10 or 12 times, not one time. It's called building a foundation. Exactly. Or or as we like to talk about, you know, uh, sort of creating some evidence uh, where you've overcome those nerves. I mean, I I played a lot of tournament golf, but I know come May 2nd when I try and qualify for this thing, I'm going to be nervous again because it's been a year since I played in that pressure. Exactly. I mean, those people who just try and prepare the day before by pounding golf balls, it's like building a house on no foundation. It's going to collapse. It's not going to hold up. What would people be surprised about? If they knew the percentage of shots a tour player, whether it's in the Masters or at the GMO, would they be surprised uh, the number of, you know, sort of not mishits that a, a tour player hits, but where you're not, it's not, they're not perfect shots, where I think they, there's a perception that you've got to hit everything perfectly, and you, you oh, see yeah. the way that, you know, Rory hits that five iron into whatever, and you think, oh, he just, he's just ripped it, but, you know, if it comes up short, it's not a quality shot for him. Oh, exactly, and, and that's what, again... Um, Hogan said, I like you know all these uh, sayings by these great players. It's not how good you play when you're playing great; it's how good you're playing when you're playing poorly. And you know, it's how well you manage your bad shots. And that's the great thing about tour players. They, they tour players don't hit, uh, are not happy with their ability to hit per, hit it perfectly. Um, you know, it's about how good their misses are, and, and that's the difference. Like, I think an average golfer cannot determine and understand a miss shot by a tour player. They just, they just can't fathom it. Yeah, well, I think what's also interesting is when a tour player hits a shot that's offline, uh, maybe fats it a little bit, and maybe things don't go his, his or her way, what I think they're really skilled at doing is not going to a place of where suddenly their belief system about themselves as a golfer diminishes <laughs> instantly. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, what am <laughs> I doing out look, here? They start looking for the cart girl. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's. I need a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah they two, need uh, to self-medicate. Two, exactly. Two <laughs> cokeities, uh, anybody else? That's here. right. I could use a hot dog now. <laughs> exactly. But no, Richard, just to ask you to speak to that a little bit and that, that yeah. ability to stay in a maybe a place of equilibrium, but their belief system is, is still there and that they're really practicing acceptance. So that kind well, of, sometimes it just doesn't happen the way that they want it to happen. Well, everyone has to understand that it doesn't happen the way you want it to happen. The majority of the time, the vast majority yes. of the time, that's golf. That's life. Um, and it's really important if golfers, I think I mentioned this before, if golfers uh, continually to attach their personal identity on how their game is, they're in for a world of hurt. Because, you know, even the best players in the world, you know, spend 80% of their time not playing the way they want to. Only about 15 to 20% of the time are they playing actually the way they want to. And, and so, you know, the majority of time, if you're, if you're frustrated or not playing the way you want to, you're going to have, a, you're going to have an identity problem. And mm. you're going to run, you know, the peaks and valleys of uh, the emotional roller coaster. And it's just, you've got to learn to detach. You know, I'm a good person. This is who I am. I stand up for these beliefs and standards. But, you know, sometimes I play good golf. But, you know what, sometimes I don't play good golf. That's the way it is. And no problem. Got to learn to detach from there, that. There was a great phrase, excuse me, after the first round. And again, I, I want to qualify. Most people, I'm not most people, everyone but the three of us are going to listen to this show after a Masters champion has been crowned. But it's still valid to talk through some of these things. And uh, Spieth, after his first round, they asked him about how he played. And he said, you know, I was a little bit scrapey or scrappy with my ball striking, but I scored my ball. Mm-hmm. And I loved that phrase. You know, that's... Uh, it, it, it goes to everything that I believe in, that it, it really is about the function of 
you know, I'm, a pro I used to work with had a great phrase. He said, "Oh, that guy's got a good short game. He's stingy. Ooh, and he has a. He's very thrifty around the greens. That's a doesn't waste. It's got to be he's not wasteful. Kern. It might have been Kern. It might have been. You know what? Because Kern, Ben Kern, we talked about him recently. One of the greatest short games I ever seen in person. And you know, and and because by the time I started playing with him, he was hitting it horribly. But that didn't matter to him because he had this belief system. Anyway, my point to you is that really is what tour players and better players do is they they score their ball. Right. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. That was a great study, Howard, on 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 Spieth on the first round of the Masters last week. You know, this past week. Um, you know, prior to it coming into it, he hadn't been playing well the last couple of months. He looked really edgy on Wednesday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. His his uh, driver face cracked yeah. on Wednesday before, and even his practice, you know, warm up before on Thursday, he didn't look particularly comfortable. And a lot of people weren't betting on him. They were they were putting their money on on um, Jason Day. And so, you know, Spieth wasn't getting a lot of love. But then when Spieth got into the first round of the tournament, it all changed. He, it's like he physiologically changed, and it was brilliant. He, was, he got into it, and uh, he was stingy. He didn't perform the way he wanted to, he did, like hitting the ball the way he wanted to, but he didn't waste a round. And those are the things that put you, you know, that make the separation. And he definitely separated himself from any other player on that first round. It was very noticeable. There was an interesting thing that's, that's uh, coming out of this Masters, and I think it's about pace of play. And uh, Spieth was really frustrated mm-hmm. on Friday uh, that they were put on the clock, uh, particularly, I think, on 11, officially on the clock. Yep. And you could see him, and you actually heard him talk that he couldn't take his time. And, but I... So maybe speak to this. I think this is becoming a real issue, because Jason Day, you know, it's, uh, you know, he's all day out there. Um, yep. And I think... What's happening is is that there's golfers are seeing these guys going through these processes, and it's really important to go through process. I believe that wholeheartedly, but I think at a certain point, and it might even be true for tour players, that these guys just tend to get in their own way rather than just getting on with it. Like take a crack at it, like Faldo said. Well, I, I'm a strong believer in what Faldo said because I think these uh, a lot of these young guys feel uh, too much of a sense of entitlement that they can take their their uh, as much time as they want. They can't. They're not allowed to. You have to. When it's your turn, you get a certain. And if you're on the clock, that means you you only have a limited amount of time to pull the trigger. It doesn't matter if it's gusting. That's not an excuse, and that's not a right. If you don't pull the trigger within that time, you should be penalized, not fined. And um, and I think these young guys haven't learned that yet, and um, I think it needs to be enforced. Um, in our last couple of minutes, with uh, you know former tour player now FOS, that's friend of the show or FOS, friend of Swing Thoughts, Richard Zokel. FOST, yeah, FOST, Faust. You know what, Richard? Don't worry about this segment. We'll just work it out on our own. <laughs> okay. um, here's the thing: I I, uh, I I feel a weird affinity for this particular player, and I'll tell you why. When I watch Bryson DeChambeau, I say to myself, "Here's a guy who doesn't care." And, and a little bit, I thought might, there might be an affinity. I was thinking about you being on our show, and I was watching yesterday. And I think this this is kind of an affinity for Richard because. DeChambeau doesn't care what the standards are, what the norm is, or what people's opinions are. He has just worked it out on his own, even to the fact that his putter looks weird. I had to go and look up who the manufacturer of his clubs were. It's a company called Edel Golf, and they're they're a top 100 you know golf ma- uh, club fitter. But what do you think of that in terms of like back in the you know the disco dick era? You said to yourself, "Yes, this might look strange." Wearing a Walkman. Um, and you even told the story of Bakken yeah. once. You were going to do it, and you didn't because of outside opinion. Sure. But it's sort of similar. Like, I look at a guy like DeChambeau, and I think, you know, I said to my buddy, we were watching yesterday, I said, you watch. In the next 10 years, you're going to see a ton of people with similar length clubs, with uh, the same type of setup, with the single plane swing. What do you think of that? Well, I applaud Bryson DeChambeau's individuality. I, I think that's great. I love watching him. He's a fascinating guy, and he's going to be a fascinating study to watch. Mm-hmm. I'm a little concerned, though, however, because he's dealing with this thing called the golfing machine. Yes. That's concerning. Now, right now, it's brilliant. And, and, um, and because he's so distinct, everyone's... You know, right now they're considering him the most interesting man in golf. Which I think he is too. <laughs> exactly. But I want to interrupt for a second here, Dick, because okay. you've got 
a special affinity or shall we say insight into the golf machine because yes. your roommate Bobby Clampett was a golf machine disciple. Yes. And that's what I'm going to talk about is the golfing machine for those, you know, my um so he's deep into the golfing machine and everyone that I know who has got into the golfing machine at some point as w- when the imbalance breaks and now right now Bryson DeChambeau has a balanced approach with his logical which is all this golfing machine t- thinking with his creative side and now keep in mind that balance is critical my roommate in college in uh, 1977 was Bobby Clampett he was uh, at Brigham Young University he was touted to be the next Jack Nicholas and he was a golfing machine disciple now the golfing machine uh, it was a book called written by Homer Kelly it is the most analytical comprehensive geometric physical golfing instruction book you can ever imagine I could it talks about twenty four power excuse me twenty four components of the swing of which there are four power accumulators and leverages and angles now talk about paralysis by analysis at the moment where expectations and the logical breaks the balance I've seen everyone fall from grace in this, including Bobby Clampett. You remember when he, right after he had a five-stroke lead after 36 holes in 1982 British Open at Troon, he collapsed and literally Bobby Clampett fell off the face of the earth in golf. You know, in, in uh, 1990, I started playing at the National, and I was starting to look around for a teacher. And my friend Marty Chuck, a tool yep. striker guy, and, and we had him on this show a couple weeks ago. Well, Marty introduced me to Mark Evershed. And for the next five years, I spent thousands of hours hitting balls with sheds. And at the time I met Mark, he was kind of a golf machine or golfing machine, Homer Kelly hybrid guy. And he started working with me. And I think the thing that saved me because of the kind of mind I have is I never read it. Because I had a feeling that if I read it, I'd I'd be in a cave somewhere with a long beard like Tom Hanks in uh, Castaway, just looking looking at the machine and and the position of my left wrist at impact. And now you're right. And you would have been in a uh, one of those jackets that fits you, but guys, I got to tell you, you know, you know, Richard and, and Tim. I was with a guy yesterday, you know, solid one handicap, played golf a long time, tournament player, and we started talking about the golf homer Kelly, and, and he had never heard of it. And yeah. I said to him, he said, well, "Why wouldn't I have heard of that?" I said, "Well, there's a special ring of golf nerds. You know, everyone's heard of Ledbetter and the Harvey Penick and all this stuff and Bob Rotella, but there's a there's a circle. That's the Homer <laughs> Kelly circle of guys that have o- opened that sort of pen." Dora's box of oh, yeah. golf instruction. That's exactly right. I, in 1982, you know, um, my rookie year in the tour, I went and, and got a lesson from Ben Doyle, who was Clampett's instructor down in Monterey. And I got through that lesson, and I said, I'm never going to be, I never want a lesson from an instructor again. It was such a bad experience, because I just couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. The only person, you know, Mac O'Grady was deep into the golfing machine, and, and Mac had the most perfect golf swing, both right-handed and left-handed. The only person that dove into the golfing machine that had um, good success was Steve Elkington, in my opinion. But, But Elkington, the thing with Elk is he was such a brilliant spatial guy. It was able, he was able to keep it in balance, and that's the trick. It, it, you have to have a balance of creativity, this spatial thought that I talk about, equal to your logical thought. Then you're, you, you will be able to move forward. But once the logical gets out of control and breaks the system, that's when the collapse will happen. And, and that's the danger, in my opinion, of dealing with the golfing machine. Yeah, and I think that what happens is a particular, I can never say that word. Particular. Yeah, that word. Mm -hmm. Uh, In tournaments, the logical side wants to take over. The ego wants to protect the golfer. And so it just throws you into your head. And those things that you did unconsciously now become conscious. Well, I got to tell you. I'm sorry just to interrupt. You know, what, what Evershed did is he sort of, and he could, I'm sure when Mark hears this, he'll correct me, but what Mark did is he took some of Homer Kelly stuff and he broke it down even, like he, he instead of 24 positions, I think Mark had seven or nine, and, and I found myself the first couple of years, I improved and I got, but I spent most of the winter, the first two years, just doing these positions. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I left is I got to the point where under 
tournament pressure, under any kind of pressure, I, I got sort of caught up in these positions as opposed right. to flowing through the movement. You get sort of concerned about where your lever is and the right. kind of, you know, all that stuff, and it was too much for me. Yeah, that's the trap of, of teaching golf technique. You start being conscious of your positions rather than executing the shot to the hole. Um, thanks very much. I, I hope soon to be, hopefully, the, you know, the most uh, guested person on our program. Well, I, I must say, we have, next time, we need to talk about what Ernie Els did well, on those six Hey, listen, pilots. we were going to say goodbye to you. I said to Tim in, in sign language, I said, well, let's leave Ernie Els uh, for our sort of post-Richard analysis, but why don't let's we talk about it. it? Go for it. Um, here's the weird thing. I called Timmy on, uh, I guess, Thursday afternoon, and he said, you said to me, oh, I haven't watched it yet. I said, you need to. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, it was some kind of like, you didn't want, you didn't want to be infected by it. I didn't want to watch it. it to me, it was like watching um, figures. Skaters fall. fall. I feel so bad for them and because you and I felt bad for Ernie because you're a sweet care bear of empathy, no, which is why yes, no, projecting all my own stuff. Yeah, well, on whatever him. it is. Yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, to be fair, I want Richard to get his take on this. To be fair, when I heard about it, I thought it was actually worse than it was, because in actual fact, I think yeah. he, he, it was an official six putt. But let's be honest, it was more like a three or four putt, and he just he just gassed the last couple. He's backhanding it, and he didn't give a crap at that point. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he missed four putts that he was trying on. So why don't you talk us through, and then maybe Tim, who's the mental performance coach, mental performance coach at Glen Abbey, I want to get both of your takes on it. Okay. So I, first of all, I like the fact that he, he faced it after the round. That was a very courageous thing, and he dealt with it very well. And I like his new word. I like when he called it the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. In that Love. South African, it's the heebie-jeebies. Well, I think it's better than the yips. The yips is too scary. I mean, that's, a, you know, <laughs> yes. you're right, Tim. You know, watching that was just like watching, trying to Google, you know, an Al-Qaeda thing. With <laughs> <someone's head laughs> that's off. right. It's just like you don't. Wait, wait, wait. Are you guys it. saying it was like you don't want to watch a beheading? It's yeah, just golf, exactly. boys. <laughs> okay, continue. So anyway, after the round, they asked him, what, 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 what are you going to do to solve this? And he says, I don't know. You tell me. Give me a brain transplant. So all he really needs to do is, 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 is have a left brain transplant, and that's the problem because his left brain is, is, is shooting in there. He, you know, if we were able to measure his brain frequency prior to him get, hitting that first putt, it would be freaking out on the left side. And, you know, he, he says he went in there. He goes in there three times and couldn't pull it back. Yeah. And, and you know, so he is deep, deep into the yip. So basically what it is, it's the same type. Let me paint this scenario. Let's play baseball. Okay, you're an outfielder. The center fielder has control of the act. So this pop fly comes up, and it's between the center fielder and, and left field. So the, the structure of communication is the center fielder has control. So he's going, I've got it. So the left fielder backs off. The proper communication, execution, the, the center fielder runs in there, catches the ball. Okay, that's how it's supposed to work. So what was happening similar to Ernie Els on that two-footer was, <clears throat> and let's move it back into the scenario of, of the outfielders, the same pop flies coming up. The center fielder says, I've got it. And then the left fielder doesn't back off. He plows into the center fielder to try and catch the ball as the center fielder is saying, I've, I've got it, and who has control? So he disrupted it, yeah. and that's the same thing. So um, anyone who has the yips in a urinary situation, he knows how to make a two-footer. He's done it his whole life. <clears throat> but there was an involuntary message that came in from his left brain, his logical, that is trying to take over, and it's panicking. And it comes out in the form of this neurological action and a yip, a, a geek, just before impact. And now he's out of control. That's the same type of thing. There's two conflict. There's a, uh, a conflicting message coming from a part of his brain, the logical side, that is disrupting his auto- his automatic nerve- autonomic nervous system that he's trained for years and years. So, Tammy, what did you think? First of all, what did you think of uh, what Richard, I mean, what Richard said, I think, is brilliant in terms of explaining it. it. But what did you think when you saw it finally? And if you were performance coaching Ernie Els, what, what could he have done after the first, let's say, a couple when he realized some of his wiring had gone awry? 
after the, after he'd missed a couple of putts. So, yeah, maybe what did, two yeah, putts? Yeah, what did you think first? Did you did did you did it look like somebody that was, you know, again their left brain is, you know, banging into their outfielder? And then what could he have done differently? In the moment, I'm not sure there's anything he could do in the moment. He was ex- his brain was exploding at at that stage in in it, I can't mind read, but there could have been panic going mm-hmm. on. Sure. Oh, no, no, there's a lot of panic. Humiliation, embarrassment, all right. of that. All this on. outside in stuff, feeling shame, guilt. Mm-hmm. At the moment, there's nothing that he could, he could do exactly there. The point is, is that as he comes off, is to completely disassociate it and not identify himself with it that it just it just happened right. and that he's going to go into the processes that he knows how to do as a professional but guys he played a pretty good round after he was six that's over on point. one two that's over for the next 17 that's the exact point so he fell back on the things that have got him through the guys won 70 tournaments around the world four major championships he's been there he knows what to do but he's he's struggling with the yips right now which is a veteran thing yes it tends to happen. The thing but, I would have suggest, I'm not a performance coach, but I've been in tournaments. I, I feel it, watching it in real, not in real time, watching it over and over again on Twitter, I just wish after the first two had missed that he had gone away and come back. Because I was going to say, we've all been in tournaments, obviously Richard for a living, but I've been in tournaments where I've made a quad on a hole in the middle of, a, of, a, of an Ontario Am, and it seems to me, looking back on it, that everything sem- seemed to speed up. Yes. And if I could have just stopped myself after I, you know, I was embarrassed, I, I you know, shanked one or hit one out of bounds, whatever it was that brings time into this whirl... I just wish I would have. And maybe well, he, he could have stepped mark away. The ball on, I think, on his fourth putt and right. when he had his longest putt. But at that time, he's just, he's just, he's just reeling. I mean, he's just, it's his mind is just exploding. Exactly. And he's uh, out of control. It's real. It's, it is out of control, and it's hard to get control. And you know, and, and you're right because the next morning he talked about the most embarrassing thing was walking out to the driving or the range, and you know, and, and having to face the the players, and he knew what they were. Um, you know, thinking it was just a, probably one of his worst experiences ever. And um, you know, there's there's some things you can do. I mean, there's some technology that you can do to deal with it. They're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder very well with this thing called brain state technology, and and it learns to calm down that anxious side. And uh, you know, you want to get ahead of it. You don't want to you know start to you know figure out the rehab of it. You want to do the prehab of it and lear- and make sure you don't even get there in the first place. Timmy, what were you going to say? I'm going to say. Prehab, that's a new word that we Love just, it. just got on Swing Thoughts. There's <laughs> lots of things that golfers can do with those situations, and I want to speak to it just briefly, but get on to the bigger piece. Like Part of the problem with Yips I, uh, is that it's the anticipation of impact that, that, you know, that miscommunication that goes on in the brain. So part of the, a way to deal with that is to look at the target as you putt. That's, a, that's, one, mm-hmm. that's just a minor point. The bigger point... And I think it speaks to what we talked about earlier, Dick, is the he didn't identify with that. At his, at his core, Ernie Els knew that he's still a good man. He's still a good guy. It doesn't diminish. I think who, that's a great point. It doesn't diminish who he is. Right. Whereas I think that's what a lot of golfers tend to go, go to. Speak to that. Yes, they do. I mean, that's. I think it's back to that identity. Um, you know, uh, Ernie Els and what was so beautiful about it made us, you know, want to hug him after the after the interview was that he faced it. Um, and we all know that Ernie's a great person, whether he's winning championships or missing two foot putt. Exactly. And 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 you know, and I think what has what us golfers have to get beyond is that we are not our golf game. We are not. Right. Uh, uh, you know, our identity is not wrapped around how well we execute shots in difficult situations where you know and when you learn how to do that and you know really learn how to do that that's when you're detaching uh from the results and you're one step closer to being able to perform well what a pleasure to uh, speak to you again it's great to get to know you and uh, see that we're all of like a mind especially when it comes to this this game remember it's a game they're not doing this with badminton there's no swing thoughts with the badminton people you know guys that curl on the weekends they're not you know having all this freaking anxiety over the rock that didn't you know go to the hog line or whatever they're not checking out the kick point on the uh yeah. broom all right richard zokel thank you so much again guys it's been a pleasure thank you for yeah. thanks for having me yeah we'll talk to you very very soon we hope thank you there's thank richard you, zokel who uh played in the masters in 1993 that was really cool 
Yeah. Um, by the way, I, I was doing this yesterday afternoon, and I just can't wait for the first golf announcer to, to try this out, because it's a natural. Because at some point, you know, Bryson DeChambeau is going to be in, conten- in contention, maybe, or getting more screen time, and he's going to make a mistake, and they're going to say, maybe Gary uh, McCord will be the first to say it. Well, there's Bryson DeChambeau. Thank you. Whoa. Thank you very much. <laughs> I kept doing this. Well, he's made another DeChambeau. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, right. what, so what's a Desham bogey times three? Uh, Desham quad. Desham triple. Okay, we're getting into. Quant- I don't care anymore. Stuff. We're out of my realm of expertise. I've even, I, you know, I hear the thing. I'm just going to say it because it's so dumb. It makes me laugh. Uh, okay, that's well, that's good. That's it a is. good thing. That's Listen, good thing. that was great. Um, man, he's a bright dude. I, I love Dick. He's got so much. I, I love the energy he has. His voice is so. But that's what was part of his issue, if you will, as a player, is that he couldn't. He had so much energy and he wanted to go so fast, but he had to reel it in. And so that's why Dick now is such a great resource for me. And he's he's uh, he's so passionate about this. He's creating this product called Golf EQ mm-hmm. because he's been through. It's like Sean Foley talked about. He's been through the wars and he understands what this is what this is all about. And um, maybe that'll be our next uh, chance to talk to him. You know, on an off week when there's not something major to talk about. Maybe we just really delve into the the Golf EQ idea. You know, I think a lot of the things that I thought I knew or felt about the mental side of golf, it really has changed over the course of knowing you and, and reading more stuff. And, you know, th- one of the things that people often say about golf, you know, there's a million cliches. And when, one of the, you know, when he was talking about Hogan saying, you know, he basically hit seven decent shots around, the rest were just, you know, versions of. or Actually, only four. Well, I see. I heard seven. But, you know, it's golf lore. Who knows? Maybe Ben never even said it. Maybe Probably it was, didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but you know the old thing, it's not how good your good shots are, it's how good your bad shots are. And one of the ones that has been around golf forever is that golf reveals character. But I believe now that it, it, it is basically showing who you are 24-7 that, you're, that, that we mask. Mm-hmm. We walk around presenting this version of ourselves, and we put a lot of energy into it. The problem is, under the game of golf umbrella, in those moments where our defenses are down, we show the world for a glimpse or two exactly who we are, good, bad, and others. Absolutely. 100%. And that's why golf is the one of the key tools, if you will, of business is you, you develop a relationship, but you also get to see what people are really like, you know, as they try and get out of a bunker for the fourth time. And, <laughs> you know, but also, let's let's go back to uh, Ernie Els. I'm, I really think that he, the way he handled that on, I mean, that's the first hole he's been struggling with the yips all year. You know, coming to Augusta, he's He's nervous as hell about it. First freaking hole, he has a hockey stick round. And, mm-hmm. But he, but here's the key piece is that, and there's the piece I say all the time. Key piece is that he showed unbelievable courage and poise to keep going. We saw what Ernie Else is really all about. Yeah, he's he revealed seven, his character. Absolutely, that's the point. Contrast that to John Daly. How many times did Daly start to have, and he just, he would give up on something. Yeah. Now, I don't know, you know, I think Daly's got his demons. I know he's got his demons, but as you look at a strength of character or a a person to model yourself off of, I really think that Ernie Els brought it to a new level of respect. So yeah, he felt embarrassed the next day. You know what? I am sure that all the players on that range, they just wanted to go up and give him a big hug. I agree. And because, not because, because they just, they felt for him and they just loved that model of, of courage and poise and just... Just modeling what a good person does in those instances. Uh, You're listening to uh, Swing Thoughts. You can subscribe on uh, iTunes. Uh, Of course, go to uh, our Facebook page, Humble. uh, What is my Facebook page? Humble Howard and Tim O'Connor on Facebook. uh, Brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas Golf. TaylorMade, the number one driver in golf. And you know what? All all sponsorship aside, I've been using the M1 since last fall, uh, just prior to it coming out. Uh, And I got to tell you, if there's one club that it really can make a difference, I don't know if it's going to make a difference for you know for everybody to be honest but you know if you're if you if you're looking to make a difference in your driving uh certainly get fit 
and uh, you know you'll definitely hit it longer. So let's quickly uh, go through a couple of quick emails. I'm not sure how much time we have for uh, Lauren Rubenstein. Sent us a note. Say I just listened to your podcast with Sean uh, Foley. One thing about your discussion after this or this part of the show with uh, with me says when we we were talking if our bodies are so smart and know what to do. And I believe this is true. Why are golfers almost to a man and woman reliant on rangefinders? As Lauren goes on to say, don't they take us out of our bodies? A driver doesn't need something on his dashboard to tell him how far he is from a stop sign. So you were talking about that day, uh, how you self-corrected when you were about to tip over on the driveway. You didn't need a rangefinder to see how <laughs> close the ground was. So what is he asking, Tim, that why, if we're supposed to be in our bodies and in a flow... Doesn't the rangefinder, isn't that just more information that gets in the way or not? I, th- I think, yeah, Lauren is definitely asking that, that piece is like how, uh, putting us more in our conscious mind, for one thing, instead of being in you know, the body, the flow, adapting to things. I think this is a brilliant question, uh, and I've, long, I've thought about it a long time. And it, so I know for myself, the one thing that Lauren was saying is that, isn't it a little bit like, you're driving a car and you see a stop sign coming. Every time we manage to stop at the stop sign, right on the number, kind of where we need to. And I, I understand that, but I think a better analogy might be, think of Kevin Pillar, uh, center fielder for the Jays. I don't think that he's got a um, in his mind a 200-foot um, a throw, a 300-foot throw, and a cutoff man throw. He just feels it and does it. So I think that's a really good analogy. And what my point is is that I think that in using the technology and the numbers, we are hijacking ourselves. But it doesn't diminish, I think, the need for having some kind of an, an idea on where the territory is in terms of how far we need need to hit the ball. And I think that amateurs tend to get in the way, but I, I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because last year, man, I I was addicted to my rangefinder, and this year I've in no BS. I already decided two weeks ago that I was not going to be uh, addicted to my rangefinder. Fine, year. but if you want to go all the way, then why? You know, if you want to go complete Amish, then you know don't look at any numbers and don't look at any uh, one fifty yard markers. See, I don't agree with this at all. I'll tell you the truth. I, I think it's an interesting question. I think it's a, a jumbled analogy. Your your point about Pilar and his ability to, to know what a throw uh, of different proportions are, you know, that's more like a golfer. But but it's also, it's more reactive. You know, when a golfer... Yes, well, I think good golfers make it into a reactive sport. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. But if, you, if you're 175 or 195, knowing that number will give you at least an idea how your body's going to react to this target and, and what club to pick. Yeah. So there's, there's a, I do understand he, what he's asking. You know, when I saw it, I was like, I, I kind of get it. What I, I, was gonna, I was trying to think of an aviation analogy, but basically most people don't realize that landing an airplane is a very physical hand-eye coordination thing. But you better know exactly how far the ground is before your natural physical abilities take over. I don't know that you need to know in golf exactly. I Maybe think not you know exactly. Whereabouts. Agreed. So I think the point is is that if you know you're 175 versus 195, that's different than knowing you're 173 oh, I agree. I agree. versus 192. One, one, one of my favorite questions is like, you know, when you're sharing a cart with somebody and you drive up and it's like the par, third shot in a par five or whatever, and, you know, it might be it might be 60, it might be 51, and they, yeah, and exactly. they say and they say, can you laser it for me? I'm like, it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> the green is right there. It's 48 yards. Does that make a difference? See, that to me is when guys go completely crazy with it. Like, if you, if you, if you need me to laser 53 versus 55, you should be on tour. Well, that's the point. P- PGA Tour players know... They know so for it's about a ten range, a ten yard range with each club, thereabouts. Yeah, there are thereabouts. So a PGA Tour player knows... That you know, if he hits a uh, his six iron, um, flushes it. It's like about one seventy five or so. I'm just guessing. No, there's there. Well, whatever. It's probably one ninety. But yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. That's actually more like whatever. But they know how to hit it one seventy eight and yes. one seventy nine. And whereas we don't. But the I think a key thing with not the. Th- 
where I think range finders or at least uh, knowing where the yardage markers are really helps because there's things that go on in a golfers you sometimes can't see. So you've blown one into the trees. You don't know how far you are. You can't maybe see, and there's things in the way that cause optical illusions. It doesn't hurt to have a general I, I agree. idea you know, on how far it is. My, uh, so we've, we've broken down you know, the overuse the, of the rangefinder and whatever. I mean, again, I, I'd been out of golf for 10 years. When I came back in 2013, I, I, I mean, you know, I played at a pretty good golf course, the National, and it had yardages on every, you know, I always thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then I come back and everyone I'm playing with has a rangefinder. I'd never used one before. And of course, now I have one. Where I find them very valuable is I'm playing a course a couple weeks ago in Greensboro. Never played there before. Yep. So, I, you know, it's a 430-yard par four, and that bunker's out there, or that tree where the, the dog leg is. I can laser what that number is and know, okay, well, I don't need driver here, or maybe I, I can't hit it over that bunker. As far as, like, the paralysis by analysis, yeah, I mean, most guys, it's like a, it's around 175, so hit whatever that number is. You don't need to know the exact number. I think that's the key piece right there is that is is not being reliant like I used to I have done that many times not so much last year but I would get the number and then and then instantly I'd have a club in my hand that would be based on that number Mm -hmm. and I I just I stopped doing that because I came to learn that there's big difference pal whether it's a back pin or a front pin and how the conditions affect the Well, sure, because yeah, if it's a back pin and it's 178, you know, you're not shooting for that number. You want, I'm not, that's another thing I like about the laser. I'll, I'll laser that bunker. I'll laser the front of the green. Uh, by the way, Lauren also says at the end, congrats on getting a sponsor. Uh, Thank you, Lauren. One really quick one from our friend Paul Gortner, a golf buddy of mine. Introduced him to you. He's now one of your students. He's been on the show. Plus handicap. Plus two handicap. He said, just a lot. I let you guys know. He's just on his way to, uh, he's there by now. He was on his way to Hawaii with his uh, wife. He says, I was able to catch uh, three episodes of Swing Thoughts on the plane. So he says, uh, something about your two voices coming together and fully saying beauty and Canadian beauty 300 times made for a very special flying experience. Obviously, I love the show. Just thought I'd let you guys know that I'm getting very positive feedback from some golf buddies of mine that you may not know, guys I played with uh, on university and such, and we appreciate it. Uh, if you're going to give us some feedback, you can. You can leave it on our Facebook page. Uh, soon we're going to have a Swing Thoughts page. You can make a comment on uh, iTunes. That would really help us in terms of ranking. And uh, that's about it. Review us, too. Yes. And constructive feedback. We're good on that. Yes. And we have please, skins. I invite you to start using Bryson DeChambeau. Yeah. Uh, in your groups, nice DeChambeau. Just go ahead. I can I can give you some other ideas. That'd be part of the the, the Swing Thoughts merchandising. <laughs> That's right. Humble and Tim say, stop making D bogies. <laughs> or you know, one of my buddies, uh, Tom Southcott, I I started using Schneider Jans as a derogatory term, which makes me laugh every time he says that because that's that other guy. That's a Foley student. Is he really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another. If you want to use that in your group, uh, credit my pal Tom. Like, hey, hey, Schneider Jans, hurry it up. <laughs> hey, Schneider Jans, you're going to be over that putt all day? All right, kids. It's uh, been great. Uh, thank you. Tim O'Connor, the mental performance uh, coach at the Clublink Academy, O'ConnorGolf.ca, and uh, check me out at Humble and Fred Radio. Uh, we'll see you next week. Get a shiver in the dark. It's raining in the park. But meantime, Sound of the river, you stop and you hold everything. A band is blowing Dixie, double fall.